Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio. And I'm really pleased to be on Kootenai Co-op Radio, KCR now. And I thought for this show today, I'd just introduce you to the work that I do and why I do radio. This has been 15 years I've been doing this show. And just a little bit about what I do so we can get acquainted. I'm planning on moving to the Kootenays in the spring. I currently live on the Sunshine Coast. So I wanted to really connect and meet some of the people that listen to the show, get to know you. And if you have any questions or comments or anyone you'd like to see on the show, particularly local people, please contact me at uh, support at well of light. That's W-E-L-L-O-F-L-I-G-H-T dot com. I'd really like to hear from you. So when I started this show, I was involved with the Pachamama Alliance, working on rainforest issues and environmental issues. And we had a vision when we were doing that to bring forth an environmentally sustainable, spiritually fulfilling and socially just human presence on the planet. And that was the culmination at the time of probably 30, well, more than that, since the 60s, working on environmental issues. And as I began the show, I was very heavily looking at and interviewing people in the environmental field, people like Bill McKibben and Joanna Macy and Richard Heinberg and those kinds of people who were really the movers and shakers. And I invested a lot of time and money in covering climate change conferences around the world and went to, oh, Cochabamba, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Copenhagen, New York, Paris, all over the world. And, uh, and I loved doing that. And I did it out of my own pocket because I really believed in it. And I was very passionate about climate justice and social justice. And so my focus in the early years were on those issues. And as I went to more and more conferences, I was more and more depressed, actually. Number one, there was so much anger uh, that was being spewed out, and I just didn't feel right. Uh, that's been the, the way it was since the 60s and created a lot of distancing and separation and not understanding the issues really fully, but much anger. And I felt that these conferences were not 
making anything substantial happen. So I stopped doing that and I focused more on the social justice, but even that, it looked like there was more and more separation, not connection. And the purpose of the show was really to connect people and, and people and the environment and the web of life. So I looked at spiritual and I thought, ah, it's only gonna be a spiritual solution that's gonna keep us from ending up where we're headed, which is not a good place, uh, which we've known about since the 50s and Rachel Carson and the early people in the movement were telling us we're, we're on a dead end path here. And so I put a lot of energy into my own spiritual practices as well as teaching. And I do teach uh, the way of the mystic, meditation and many other courses still today. And I reached a point about three years ago where I basically came to the conclusion, we're screwed. You know, there's really uh, nothing that's gonna work here because people are more spiritual bypassing than actually going into the deep work of interconnecting and interbeing as Thich Nhat Hanh used to call it. And so I was really depressed for quite some time over that realization. And then I met someone named Thomas Hubel who was on my show last week and I began to study trauma. I came from a world of trauma. I uh, experienced a great deal of death uh, and violent trauma and war in my early years. And I had been very traumatized myself. So at first I entered the field of trauma to kind of fix myself, you know, like we do, we study psychology so we can fix what we think is broken. And when I started to really study not only individual, but collective trauma, I realized, oh, it's this trauma that is an ocean in the sea of humanity, this collective trauma. I mean, how else could you explain taking children away from their, their parents at the border or the genocide that we've created around the world, dropping atomic bombs, slavery, the genocide of the native people, all of these issues don't make sense. You know, I remember a story one time, I can't remember her name, I think it was Anna Laurent, but she was a reporter and she was covering the trial of Adolf Eichmann and she thought she was going there, she would see evil incarnate. And she said, and, and she was a Jew, Jewish um, reporter. And she said, when he walked into the room, here's a man responsible for the killing of millions of people. And he reminded her of her grandfather, this little old man shuffled in. And she had this horrible realization that the, the worst that he could be accused of is being thoughtless. And what does that mean being thoughtless? I realized as I contemplated that it means not present, 
And so as I got to know Thomas and his work on trauma, I realized that mostly we're not here. We're not present, we're absent. And that we live in a Cartesian, Newtonian, mechanistic, objective model of reality. It's not that we even realize it. We live from inside this scientific belief that we are separate, separate from our bodies, separate from each other, separate from nature, separate from other people. And I realized at the heart of all of this suffering is this one thing. It's the belief in separation. And so the combination of looking at the deep societal sea of trauma, the culture of trauma in the world, and how both our individual traumas are fed by it, and we in turn are fed by the cultural trauma. It's very hard for people to really be present and to be with the huge disembodiment, disconnection, and decoherence that happens in our lives and in the world every day, every moment. So what do I mean by that? So first of all, what's trauma? Trauma is the product, as we talked about last week, of a very intelligent nervous system that is here to protect us, here to heal, here to keep us from being overwhelmed by the fear and anxiety, particularly in our early years, that threatens our survival. So what happens is, let's say you're two or three years old and you're with your caregivers and they're good people, they're good caregivers, but they're also in this sea of trauma too. And so something happens, the dog barks and scares you and you come running and you say, I'm scared, I'm scared, you know, daddy, I'm scared. And daddy's just, gotten home from work, might have had a drink on the way home, was paying the bills, was overwhelmed with just keeping a family and taking care of things. And daddy says, go away. You know, there's nothing to be scared about. You don't need to be scared. And of course the child says, but daddy, I am scared. There's nothing to be scared about. Now let me do my work here and go play. And you know, that's an understandable thing, but it has huge impact because the child is left with this conundrum of my daddy, my caregiver, who I can't make wrong really because he's the source of my survival, says there's nothing to be scared about, but I am scared. So something's wrong. And then what the child does is not just something's wrong, something's wrong with me. And that begins the buildup of this trauma-induced catatonia that most of us live in and these ways that we continue to deepen and, and fragment 
parts of our es essential self. One of the messages that I am always trying to bring is that uh, we are not flawed and we are not broken and there's nothing to fix. There are parts of us that our nervous system has shut down because it was saving us from a situation that was overwhelming. And so we had to nurture ourselves. Let's look at the same situation. And this is important, I think, particularly for parents. Um, say the same incident, and I'll use the mother, but it's really not gender specific here. So the child, dog barks and the child gets scared and runs to, to mother. And mother says, oh, you're scared, come here, come sit on my lap. And she puts her arms around me. She says, you know what? I get scared sometimes too, and it's okay to be scared. And I want you to know that I love you. And I'm really glad that you came and told me you're scared. And that kind of allows the fear to be there and doesn't fragment a part of us off. So when we're dealing with all these fragmented parts of ourselves, they are in the body, these fragments. They're actually frozen parts of our past. When we talk about our past, we think of it as back there somewhere, but our past is really frozen in us. It's fragmented parts of our essential goodness that we were born with. We were born essentially good. We aren't born with original sin. We were born with original goodness. But with our parenting, with our familial and ancestral and cultural and historic traumas that we've met that haven't been soothed, haven't been nurtured, haven't been understood, haven't been seen and heard, these constitute a self that is born out of this separation that comes from these fragmented parts of us. So in my work with people, in my groups, which is particularly powerful to do this kind of work in groups. What is the kind of work? It's a meditative approach to meeting life, an embodied meditative approach to meeting life because our body is our instrument. It records everything. And so when we talk about healing, we're talking about wholeness not fixing something, but integrating those lost parts of ourselves that are frozen in our body. And it takes an enormous amount of energy to hold those frozen parts in. I often talk about my chicken story, people call it. Let's say you went to the market, to the Kootenai Co-op, and you bought a chicken and you took it home and you said, well, I'm, it's Monday. I'm not going to have this chicken till Saturday. So I'm going to freeze the chicken. So we put it in the freezer. It takes a lot of energy to freeze that chicken. And it continues to take a lot of energy to keep that chicken frozen. So your freezer is running, 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 using energy, using energy. And then when you pull that chicken out of the freezer, that energy is returned. 
it, it thaws out. It doesn't need to be using that energy. And the refrigerator has a greater capacity to hold more, you could say. But that's exactly what these frozen parts of us from early time, these incidents that happened to us when they were fearful or overwhelming and we suppressed them or our nervous system did so that we could keep on going on. When we release these frozen parts of ourselves, we get back this huge amount of energy. So the question is, how do you do that now? So we have all these fragmented parts of ourselves that are now frozen in time in our body, in time space. Well, the teaching that I do and the way of the mystic course has three basic principles. And I wanted to just share them with you. They are presencing, witnessing, and embracing. Presencing. Presencing is a way of having our perception and presence come together and zoom in on what's happening in this moment right now. What's happening in my emotions? Can I feel my emotions? Can I distinguish my emotions? Can I see where my emotions are in the body? Am I aware of my body sensations? Do I actually have inner body awareness? You know, I worked in the corporate world for 30 years, more than that actually, but as a consultant for 30 years. And what I found is that people are quite disembodied. James Joyce has a, a wonderful short story. It starts out, Mr. Duffy lived a short distance from his body. Wonderful line. And what I find is that that's true for most of us. We live a short distance. We're not fully in our body. Very few people are fully embodied, are aware of the movement, of the flow, of what's happening, of what gets stuck, of the tension, of the echoes in our breath, of incidents that happen to us. All of these things are available by presencing. We become present to what's happening. We zoom in. And when we do that, and we bring ourselves into present time, because mostly we live in the remembered past. It's not even the real past. It's the remembered past. And what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, if you ever sit around with the family, if you have siblings or something, and you say, remember that time when this happened? And people will start to say, no, that isn't how it happened. It happened this way. No, no, it happened that way. And you, you go, well, no, this is, what, this is how it happened because it's not actually the past, it's the remembered past. And more than that, the trauma incidents that we have, the incidents where we were overcome with fear, terror, or something you know, really difficult happened and we dissociated these parts of ourselves, it wasn't even the incident that caused us to dissociate and to suppress 
these parts of ourselves. It was the story we made up about what happened at that time. And so these stories are living us. We're not really fully present because the stories that we are living that are who I consider myself to be. I'm this kind of a person. I'm strong, I'm weak, I'm a victim, I'm a powerful person, I'm stupid, I'm not artistic. All of these stories are all fragmented parts of our wholeness. We are whole and complete and we have fragmented pieces of ourselves that don't allow us to fully express that. So we presence ourselves, and we bring ourselves, we zoom in space time to now, to this place, and we begin to explore. And of course the mystics path is meditation, contemplation, prayer. Uh, there are many types of meditation, obviously from movement. I taught Gabrielle Roth's five rhythms and danced with her for 40 years just so I could get into my body because I was completely disembodied. I remember going for rolfing one time, early, uh, early seventies. And after a few sessions, my rolfer said, Michael, you're the only person I've ever worked on that doesn't realize he has a body. I was just, just plowing through life with coffee and cigarettes and making things happen in life. But I was barely present. I was dealing with a lot of early trauma, continuous early trauma. And so that's the first step in the process that I offer people is this presencing. The second part happens when we've practiced presencing through meditation. And most people who are meditations kind of will recognize and have glimpses of this. There comes a point where our presencing shifts into witnessing in a sense that the I, the me, the my begins to dissolve and there is an occurring that's happening. Oh, I have movement in my chest. Ah, oh, my breath is very shallow and short. And, and the my then disappears and I go, oh, shortness movement, flow. These things are alive. And there begins to be this separation, the separation between the I and the occurring. And we have this sense of, well, am I two people? Because if I'm observing myself, then who or what is doing the observing? What's doing the observing is consciousness itself. And then we are in our story, which is much of our story is built around this fragmentation, these parts of ourself that have been shut off. And of course that's given us strong suits. We've become 
smart. We become creative. These are ways we compensate for the areas that we've suppressed of our essence. And so when we move into this witnessing stage, we have an opportunity to really deepen our ability to be with things as they are, not as we would like them to be or as they should be or we would uh, want them to be, but actually as they are. And at this level of awareness, without any work, only through awareness, we begin to integrate these lost parts of ourselves. There's no fixing, there's no doing. It's awareness that heals. Authentic looking and seeing what's so, what's occurring is how we heal. And in healing, I'm saying how we become more whole. Now, what we'll also find is some pretty gnarly parts that we don't want to deal with, our shadow parts, the parts that we don't want to, we, we purposely keep them down. We don't want to look at them and we don't want somebody else to know about those parts. God forbid that somebody knows some of the thoughts I have. Oh my God. I'd get arrested for some of the things I think about sometimes, but it's not me, it's the identity. Now, what's the identity? The identity is a story that has developed through our life. And we don't live our identity, we live from our identity. It's how we meet the world. I'm a father, I'm a teacher. I'm a scholar, I'm a housewife, I'm a mother, I'm whatever. That builds up a story and we live from that story. It's an identity, it's our ego. And it includes all these parts, the suppressed parts, the alive parts, the brilliant parts, the not so brilliant parts. Now, one of the reasons it's so hard to heal is our story has only one purpose. What do you think that purpose is? Our story's purpose is its own survival. This is how spiritual bypass happens, how we can go into places where we'll be spiritually, oh, I've got it all together, I'm so happy, la la la, I do my mantra, no. We're not embracing and being with our shadow then. So witnessing allows us to step outside of our identity, our story, and it begins to deconstruct in a way that we can see the fragmented parts of who we are. And in doing this, we come up against the really gnarly parts. So the third stage is to embrace Remember, awareness heals. We embrace these parts of ourselves. Change does not come from being who we aren't. Change comes from being exactly who we are in the moment and recognizing that. But we're always 
living into some destination out there, some ideal that we have. Oh, it'll all be okay. You know, it starts early. It's like, as soon as I can go to, go to kindergarten, oh, it's going to be so great. I'm going to be, it's going to be so much fun. And it's like, oh, this is weird. And then we go through grammar school and it's, oh, well, you know what? It's all going to be wonderful when I get into high school. I'll be with my friends. We'll go do things together. And it's like, oh, God, clicks and outcast and fear and dances and girls or boys. And oh my God, I can't wait till I go to college. And then I go to college and it's like, God, this is hard. I can't wait till I graduate and get to this, get a job. And we get a job and yeah, oh, this is hard. I really like a family. That's what I need. I need a family. Okay, I get married. Ah, this is it. No, this is not it. I need kids. So we'll have some kids. Oh, great. Oh, God, they're driving me crazy. I can't wait till they're out of the house. And I can, you know, my wife and I can just go and have a good time. And, and then they get out of the house and, and I'm not really feeling connected with my partner. What I need to have is an affair, you know, and then on and on and on it goes. So we have this one side that's saying, as soon as I get to someplace other than this, life will be, will be really, really good. And then this ideal, trying to live up to an ideal. I try to live up to my own ideals. I fail miserably. Well, what if I just actually explore? Oh, I have ideals and they're causing me suffering because it's not what's happening now. It's keeping me from being here or better yet ideals with my partner. You know, I have the, I, I have almost the ideal partner. If she or he would just do this, oh, it would be so good. We have these ideals. Oh my God. I got such a great husband. He's just, yeah. If he'd just be a little more understanding and listen to me, he just needs to learn how to listen. He's really a great guy. Or I have this amazing, amazing woman. She's just kind of messy and, and, and kind of spacey sometimes. If, if she, why can't she just be more like a man maybe? So I have these ideals. So I'm never really with the people I love. You could say that presencing and witnessing is mutuality. That's love. Presence is love. It's giving myself to the moment, to what's self. And so we get to the really shadow, gnarly parts that we've been suppressing for a long, long time. And we have enough sense of self to realize I need to explore these, you know, and we go into them, into the body. We discover there's some pain and then there's some emotion in that pain. And, and I begin to explore the pain and I see the pain has an age because trauma always has an age in space, space time. It has a signature in the body, these fragmented parts. And I go, well, wow, that's, that's big. I have a lot of fear. 
And what age is that fear? Ah, it's three years old. And maybe I remember an incident, an explicit thing, but maybe it's just an implicit kind of feeling of, oof, three was rough. That was a rough year. And I allow myself to go to that three-year-old. And I say, hey, three-year-old, come here. Come sit on my lap. And I meditate on this. And I invite the three-year-old, come sit on my lap. Come on. Tell me what you needed then. What did you need at three? Oh, I needed to be heard. People didn't feel what I was feeling. Nobody saw me. I said, come here. And I put my arms, imagine I put my arms around this three-year-old and I said, sweetheart, I see you. I saw you then and I see you now. And I want you to know that I'm here for you. And it's okay to be scared. It's okay to have these feelings, these contradictions, these fears. It's okay. And I just spent some time embracing and nurturing that younger self who got trapped in some trauma. And say, it's okay. So this is the healing path that I teach. I'm sharing with you, but you'll see that many of the authors and wisdom holders that I bring onto the show are in this whole area. How do we become whole? How do we become congruent? What do I mean by that? Gabrielle Roth, my teacher for many, many years, as I said, uh, used to say, we're trizophrenic. We're not schizophrenic, we're trizophrenic. What does that mean, trizophrenic? Yeah, that our mind is doing one thing, our emotions are doing another, and our body is doing quite another. In other words, we're out of alignment. We are incongruent. And we are all incongruent in some areas in our life. So one of the practices of meditation helps us to become more congruent, more aligned. The entire universe is moving towards congruency, towards wholeness. And wholeness is healing. Healing is wholeness. When we take the opportunity to presence, to cultivate witnessing, to embrace the shadow, we become more whole, more congruent, more connected. And then to move to the larger thing that I mentioned earlier, we become more connected to life, to other people, to the web of life. So climate change, which I originally thought was just getting people to learn about the impact, the scientific principles of why we have climate change. I now realize climate change is a relationship issue completely. It's about being present in relationships because that same kind of congruency that we feel when we align our mind and our emotions and our body we can then do with other people. 
it seems like when I'm with someone else, they're out there, even speaking to you now. It's like I'm speaking to you out there and I'm over here. There's a separation. Yes, there's that. But there's also, no, not that. You're actually over here in my nervous system. If I'm connected to you, you are in my nervous system and I witness you in me. I witness life in me, not out there. That's when the separation dissolves and we become more connected. Now, one of the things in the groups that I do, the whole point of them is co-regulation. So I learn by becoming more present and I witness these things in me and I embrace them. And through awareness, I heal and I become more coherent. And I regulate myself so that I have a greater opportunity when I'm triggered by something, instead of reacting, that space between the event, the stimulus and the response, how I respond, there's this space where we can choose our reaction. And the more present we get, the larger the space is. So I move from reacting to the stimulus, to responding to it. And that makes me more whole and congruent. But then when I get into other, into a, what people would call a sangha, a group, a community, and I begin to practice this presence together with someone else, an interesting thing happens. We begin to co-regulate you may be down and I may be up and somehow we find the balance there. And my being present brings you to a higher state of presence. And so when we're talking about this whole issue of trauma and the sea of trauma that we live in to get back to the earlier part, there's this sea of trauma that we're influenced by and influencing by not attending to the fragmented parts, the shadow parts, the dissociated parts of ourselves. And they don't have to be specifically ourselves because our family, our ancestors, our culture, our history also is in us, not out there. So even if you had the perfect childhood, I don't know anyone yet that I found that has exactly the perfect childhood, but if you did and you say, well, I don't have any trauma. Well, you're carrying the trauma of your ancestors. It's interesting. There's a thing called retro causality has been proven in physics and in other, other ways. And it's what the uh, ancient masters have been talking about all the time that I can change the past by my ability to be with and integrate those fragmented parts in the present. So not only are we healing our ancestral lineage when we do this kind of healing, we're healing it for our descendants, for our children and our children's children. 
So I consider this work to be very, very important work. That's a little bit about how we can, in groups, learn to co-regulate and create coherence. And that then drifts out into the people we come in contact with. You know, when you've been with somebody that's really, really present, like you're, if you're around somebody like the Dalai Lama or Thich Nhat Hanh, who I had the opportunity to be, spend some time around, or Pema Chodron, some of these people, there's a spaciousness that just invites you in. You feel seen and heard and felt. And when you cultivate that, it affects, infects the people around you, your family, your spouse, your community. It enters into the field of consciousness and begins to shift the turbulent waters of our contemporary field of consciousness. So now you're feeding into this presencing, this witnessing, this opportunity to embrace life as it is, and that feeds the larger field. So as I said earlier, I got to this point about three years ago where I thought, just we're screwed until I started realizing that no, what we need to attend to is this fragmentation that is affecting all of us so that we are unable to fully connect with life. And when we fully connect with life, we will not do harm to others because they will be part of us. We will not do harm to our environment because it is our nest, our home, and it feeds and nourishes us. I've been talking a lot here, and I just wanted to introduce myself to all the lovely people in the Kootenays and let you know that uh, I can't wait to be more active in the community. If you want to be active in the community online, you can go to welloflight.com. That's W-E-L-L-O-F-L-I-G-H-T.com. And you can join one of our Way of the Mystic or Advanced Mystic programs or our meditation retreats, or there's a lot of writing there. I, I do a monthly newsletter that you can get. I do a lot of videos and recordings like this. So I really invite you to join in and participate in um, all the different things that I've been sharing with you. Also, if someone has a lovely cabin in the woods that is coming available in the spring, please let me know because I am looking somewhere between Nelson and Caslow to relocate and to get more involved in this beautiful community. Thank you for listening to me going on. I have some more things I want to say, but just wanted to do a little break there and tell you that's why I'm doing this show called We Earth Radio. We as in us, earth as in our home, radio as communication. And so I'm thrilled to be bringing you this program 
And normally I will have a guest. I just thought it would be fun to just, I've just been chatting here. So I hope it makes sense what I've been saying. And if there's any questions, please write to support at welloflight.com. Be lovely to hear from you. I guess another thing I'd like to talk about is this whole othering that we do. Of course, it goes along with everything I've been talking about, but we don't realize how much we are embedded in this me and you, us and them. We're like this and not like that. And it is, it is killing us. I, I really invite you to notice how many ways we separate ourselves as a, as a process to, to, of integration to begin to journal, to meditate on, to keep a practice of recognizing, oh, I just separated this person out. I'm not like that. There isn't any, anybody that I haven't found a piece of me in. And in fact, you know, if I'm angry or upset with someone, generally it's not even the person but we say, you made me feel that way, or this made me feel that way. You know, all of that is othering. That is all separating ourselves from the essence of our interconnectedness. Thich Nhat Hanh called it interbeing. You know, how can I cultivate interbeing where what I call the difficulties, the challenges, the things that I just, that exhaust me sometimes. Part of the exhaustion is resisting them. Let's look at it from a meditative place. I teach meditation a lot. I try to get a couple hours of meditation in every day because it really allows me to do this kind of work. And people, people say, well, how do you fit that into your life with all the different things that you do? And my response to that is, I don't, I fit my life into my meditation because I recognize if I'm not doing that, I am doing this kind of othering. And I'm putting a boundary between myself and myself, myself and others, myself and the world. And so uh, it's a practice, presencing, is the opposite of othering, obviously, but it's more, it's a, it's a deeper process when I can continually open to how I create separation, I will also be able to find how I can create connection with someone. Don't we all wanna be seen and heard in some way? I mean, it's frightening for some of us to be seen and heard, but we want that. We want to be known. We want our voice to be heard. How good are you at feeling your emotions? Mostly, we don't feel our emotions. We have feelings we call emotions in our head. But to actually feel emotion, there's no good or bad emotions to actually allow ourselves to feel in our body 
Oh, that fear. Oh, there it is right in my solar plexus. Ah. The grief right in my lungs. Oh my God, I can feel it. We need to feel our grief, not to wallow in it, but to feel in it. There's so much grief in the world, so much. You can grieve a loss of a parent. You can grieve the loss of a spouse or even a child. It's hard, it stays with you. How do you grieve the loss of 200 species a day on the planet? How do you grieve the loss of the habitat of 90% of the large fish in just decades in the ocean? How do you grieve these extinctions? Genocide of our brothers and sisters over spiritual differences over who's right and who's wrong. I don't know about you, but grieving is a good thing. I practice grieving, actually. It's very healthy. So the more that we work on our own healing, again, not to fix anything, the more that we allow ourselves to really honor our essential goodness that we were born with and to love the fragmented, fearful, separate, dissociated parts of ourselves, the more whole, the more human, the more health we achieve by doing that. So, again, this othering, is only coming from protection and the illusion of separation. We're trying to protect the tenderness of our heart from being hurt. And in that, we separate ourselves from the world. So to go back to these parts of ourselves that are difficult and that are hard. And if we're a meditator, they're getting in the way. My leg is shaking. My There's craziness in my head. I can't stop thinking. And they're getting in the way of my evolution. No, they're not getting in the way. They are the way of awakening. The more we can be with and allow those fragmented parts of ourselves, the more whole we become, the greater our ability to contribute to the world, the healthier we become, the more loving we become towards ourselves and others. So that's why I do this work. That's why I do these shows. So occasionally I might do one like this myself, but for the most part, I'll bring in the wisdom keepers, the elders, the, the younger people that are doing amazing things on the planet, you know, covering climate change as difficult as it was to feel the 
lack of movement in doing, uh, going to all those different places around the world, what always inspired me was the young people. I remember in Copenhagen some years ago, I don't know, eight, 10 years ago, I was so frustrated by the process and so wanting to see something to happen on the global level of dealing with climate change. And this woman walks through the people's, there's the main conference and then the people's conference. And this woman walks through with, I don't know, kindergartners, like all holding hands, connected, walking together through the main room. I just burst into tears. It was so beautiful to see the innocence and the presence and the fascination and the wonder and the curiosity. We've lost that in ourselves for most of us. What if we actually purposely invested our time in rediscovering our curiosity, our sense of wonder, our sense of awe, our sense of gratefulness. You can't be really curious in a sense of wonder, in a sense of thanksgiving and not be present. That is perhaps the primary access to cultivating presence. So again, it's such a, a joy to be part of KCR. Please do let me know what's on your mind. What do you wanna do with the rest of the life you've been given, the precious life you've been given? I really invite you to cultivate stillness. David Wagner has a wonderful poem. He says, so there's native children uh, is a North, West poet, Washington, I think. And he says, uh, the young native child asked the grandfather, what do I do when I'm lost in the forest? What do I do, grandfather, when I'm lost in the forest? He says, stand still, stand still. The trees ahead and bushes beside you are not lost. Wherever you are is called here. And you must treat it as a powerful stranger, must ask permission to know it and be known. The forest breathes, listen, listen, it answers. I have made this place around you. If you leave it, you may come back again saying, here, here, no two trees are the same to raven. No two branches are the same to wren. If what a tree or a bush does is lost on you, you are surely lost. Stand still, stand still. The forest knows where you are. You must let it find you. Mm, I love that poem. I invite you to take some time in stillness and perhaps contemplate some of the things we talked about. Let me know how you're doing. It's really lovely to be with you. I look forward to the time 
post-COVID when we can be together, maybe sit in a circle together, a sangha, and meditate together. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you so much for listening to We Earth Radio. Until we meet again, remember it's you that makes the difference. The way we live our lives, the words we say, even the thoughts we have, all shape the world around us. So lovely to be with you. Bye for now. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. We are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.